Welcome to the Future Charlotte podcast, where we talk about the people, trends, and issues shaping our community's future. I'm your host, Eli Portillo. Today, we're going to be talking about a new phenomenon that's cropped up in the real estate market. Wall Street-backed landlords, big corporations buying tens of thousands of single-family houses and turning them into rentals. The Charlotte Observer and the Raleigh News and Observer recently published the results of a months-long investigation into these new companies and their effect on the real estate market and the people in our state. Our guest today is Tyler Dukes, investigative reporter with the Raleigh News and Observer. Tyler, thanks for joining us today. Thanks for having me. So this story has been getting a lot of attention. Tell me kind of the overall big picture. What did you find? How did you get started on this issue? And um, what are some of the the key conclusions that you reached? Yeah, so we really started on this um, as we were looking at property records in, uh, frankly, in the middle of 2021, I think, actually. And, you know, really the question at that point, when we we're just looking at property records on the county level is, you know, we, we know that this housing market is hot. We know that people are buying. And there was sort of a question from some of our editors about, well, like who's making money? And as we started to dig into the property records, one of the things that sort of jumped out at us very quickly, even from the most rudimentary sort of analysis, and I'm talking just counting how many people own property, right, is that the same names kept coming up again and again. And a lot of times these names were a little obtuse. They had a lot of acronyms. They had a lot of numbers. And most importantly, they weren't people. And so um, we did a little bit of reporting around this when we um, wrote a story uh, last year looking at the rise of Open Door and just how active they've been in the triangle. But, you know, we had sort of set as a side issue this, this sort of bigger question of like, who are these LLCs and companies that, you know, seem to be soaking up a lot of this property, not just during the pandemic, but even before that. Um, y'all had already done some really fantastic work, uh, I believe in June of 2021 to sort of quantify this in Charlotte, uh, which really is a national hotspot. But as we started, you know, conceiving of this project, the question we sort of wanted to answer was, um, one, can we get an, a really authoritative statewide count of just how many of these properties are owned by some of these large corporations? And can we start to gauge what sorts of impacts those companies are having uh, on all sorts of things, whether it's the housing market, whether it's evictions, all these other questions? Um, We didn't quite get to part two of that, uh, largely because answering part one, as you know, is so difficult. Um, It's hard to gauge impact without getting an accurate count. And so that is where we really focused our efforts. And you know, the last couple of months, we, you know, developed a couple of processes for identifying these companies. And, and the result was that, you know, 40,000 properties across North Carolina, we're talking about single family homes at a minimum are owned by some of these really large corporations. And we're specifically talking about corporations that have portfolios of larger than 100 single family homes or more. Yeah, and that is, um, you know, I think a really startling headline number. This is one of those things that I think a lot of people have maybe seen in their neighborhood, um, 
these you know companies coming in and buying a few houses or I know people who have sold houses in the last couple of years who are just really surprised that uh, the offers come in at, within an hour sometimes of their property hitting the market. It's something people know is going on, but seeing it laid out as, you know, here's the totality of it um, for the first time in the whole state really, I think, kind of brings home how much property they've accumulated and how big this business model has gotten in some ways kind of under the radar. Um, you know, we looked into this at the Urban Institute last year. It's something I think is really interesting. So it was just kind of a, a personal interest side project. And, you know, when we found that they owned more than 11,000 of these properties in uh, Mecklenburg County, that was really just kind of surprising. But the statewide number, that was just great work putting that together. So you've got this new business model that really emerged after the recession. You've got these companies that are uh, new on the scene, in a lot of cases backed by really obscure you know, financial models and operating through dozens of LLCs with weird names. Uh, you did a great job piecing that together. And one thing I found really interesting in your story was how you delved into the financialization that's driving all this and how it's not just you know landlords buying properties and collecting the rent, but there's really um, a big machine behind this repackaging all these properties into Wall Street, so to speak. Tell me about that and how that behind the scenes aspect is really powering this uh, this financial machine. Yeah, and we thought a lot about this uh, this sort of metaphor of of this machinery, and it's actually something that you know you sort of saw in the presentation of our story. But yeah, I mean, if, if we think about a couple of the different models that we're sort of familiar with, right, with how you know people build wealth through home ownership, whether on a personal level or if you're a small landlord or you're a house flipper, generally what you're talking about doing is buying a home and later you're selling it for some gain in equity. Um, and that can really be a big payout. Well, what these companies did early on when they started buying up big pools of distressed properties after the foreclosure crisis is um, they you know, really wanted to try to look for ways to increase their profit model beyond um, letting go of the house selling it and cashing in the equity or sort of the slow and boring way of just like collecting that rent check every month. Right. Um, that's money, but that's not wall street money. Right. And so one of the things they did is almost as soon as they started buying up these properties in the wake of the foreclosure, they invented a wholly new financial mechanism called the rental back security. Now, a rental-backed security is just a type of asset-backed security. There's lots of these. And in fact, I'm sure many of your listeners will be familiar with the mortgage-backed security, which bundles up a bunch of mortgages and promises bondholders, the people who buy these securities, future mortgage payments. Instead of mortgage payments, what the rental-backed security does is promise the buyers of these securities future rental payments. And in that way, the company selling these securities can get a big payout all up front. And people who are buying these securities can get a really stable, reliable uh, return on their investment. Uh, so reliable, in fact, that um, big pension funds like North Carolina's, for example, actually own millions of dollars worth of these securitizations. 
Now, the the big difference though here is that a mortgage-backed security does depend on sort of the lifespan of that mortgage, right? So if you move and pay off your mortgage, or if you walk away from the mortgage in default, like so many people did during, during the foreclosure crisis, that is a riskier financial product for the people who buy it. That's not the case with rental-backed securities. And we talked to financial experts about this who basically looked at this and said, you know, look, if somebody's not going to pay that rent and you kick them out of the house, you're going to get somebody new coming in there to pay that rent. And so what we're talking about is a much more stable financial model, a much more attractive and reliable product for uh, sort of outside big money investors. Um, and these companies, in a lot of ways, are able to turn that big payout, in some cases, upwards of a billion dollars in one fell swoop, and use that to buy more properties. So when we, we talk to people who have been watching this market, that, that was, you know, what they say is that that was very much an incentive to get into this business. And it is a driving force, it is, it's sort of the fuel that powers a lot of their buying potential here. And, and we should remind people that the houses that these companies are buying are a lot of times what we would consider starter homes. It'd be like the kind of house that you would buy if you were the first, you know, your first real job, you just got married, you're starting a family. Um, right now, people are competing with these corporations. And that's a, a thing that, you know, several people have noted are very, um, it can be a very worrisome uh, trend, and it is worrying realtors, it's worrying home buyers, it's worrying watchers of the industry. Yeah, and I think that is something that really uh, resonates with people more so than you know the idea, abstract ideas around wealth accumulation or um, you know intergenerational wealth. That idea of a home, especially a first-time home, is really how you get your start on the American dream. We've really built that up in this society. And I think that the fact that these companies are in many cases um, competing with those buyers and vacuuming up a large number of single family uh, starter homes is one of the reasons that this story has such long legs. What did you find in talking to people and uh, about their thoughts around that? And kind of if we take a big picture zoom out question, why should we care, you know, that these companies are doing this at all? I mean, this is such a good question, right? Because the the idea of real estate as an investment vehicle is not something that is new, right? Uh, commercial property, um, warehouses, multifamily apartment complexes, uh, medical office buildings, like all of these things are when you when you listen to Wall Street talk about diversifying their portfolio, these are the things they talk about, right? But the big difference, at least in my mind and the, in the minds of experts who have sort of been looking at this, is that homeownership is not just something that is encouraged in this country. It is a central part of the public policy around building wealth. If you, if you look at what happened in the wake of the Second World War, there was this huge push to get people on board with the idea that owning property was an essential part of not just being an American. But, but how you build your middle-class wealth. And that homeownership is actively incentivized by the tax structure we all live in and you know, the sort of 
public policies on the local, state, and federal level uh, to encourage this homeownership. And the idea, right, is it makes some sense. Is like if you own property in a place, you have a deep stake in that place. And so, you know, the the reason in my mind why this is such a different thing um, than say, you know, the companies that are coming in and buying up a bunch of multifamily apartment complexes is that this idea of a house with a picket fence and a yard um, and owning that and being able to potentially, you know, sell it to pay for college or sell it to pay for your retirement or pass it down to your children um, is, is a really baked in idea of what it means to be an American, especially in places like the Southeastern United States. And so, you know, when one of the things that was really striking to me is a conversation we had um, with a Georgia Tech professor, Alora Raymond, who's been looking at this for quite some time and, and did some research into this while she was a researcher for the Atlanta Fed. Um, you know, what she points out is that, you know, when you look at the, the contours of American wealth, it's we used to have much higher wage jobs, we used to have pensions, and we used to have homeownership. Well, we have much lower wage, wage jobs now. Many people do not have pensions. Uh, we're, we have moved almost entirely to a 401k and sort of invest in your own retirement system. What we have left, she says, is homeownership. And her concern is that when that goes away, we're talking about taking away a, a, a really, really significant portion of, of American wealth and especially American middle-class wealth. Now, I think it is important to note that, you know, the pushback from the industry on that would be that, you know, their presence in some of these markets they are claiming is not having an impact on homeownership. And I think the data on that is a little bit unclear. But, you know, one of the things that that does really worry people. And the reason why this resonates is when they see a neighborhood that used to be mostly families um, on the deeds starts becoming a neighborhood where it's mostly uh, obscure LLCs um, with, with no actual staff tracing back to sort of a absentee parent company somewhere in Arizona or New York or Georgia, that starts to worry people. So let's talk about the industry's perspective. I know you reached out to all the major companies, um, American Homes for Rent, Tricon, Invitation, et cetera. But my understanding is they either um, emailed you back or referred you to uh, the National Trade Group. What's their perspective? And um, you know, I know one thing they say is, hey, look, there's millions of single family houses in a state like North Carolina. We're talking about a small percentage that we own. What else did they tell you? And what's their kind of, uh, what's their line on all this? Yeah. So we did reach out to some of the major companies. Uh, you mentioned a few of them, American Homes for Rent, Tricon, First Key, a few others. Um, and we did ask for interviews. None of them consented to do those interviews with us. So, you know, they did send sort of prepared statements and, you know, a lot of their points are similar. We did do a pretty extensive interview with the executive director of the National Rental uh home council. Um, and, and this is a thing that, that, that a lot of them touch on is that, look, we are, we are players in a much bigger, much more complicated market that includes 
small operators who do very similar things. It, uh, it includes speculators who are buying and flipping houses, uh, you know, on the, the big level and the small level. Uh, and, and also families that are looking for these homes as investment vehicles. And, and all of that is true. And that's one of the things that makes this such a complicated question is that there is, through the complexity of the housing market, it can be very difficult, I think, to tease out the, the actual tangible effects of um, this industry in particular on the housing market. But one of the things I would say, you know, to be quite honest, is uh, is a bit disingenuous about one of the claims they make, and and that is that, you know, they own a very small percentage of overall houses um, across the state, in particular. That's true. Forty thousand plus single family houses is a very small percentage of the houses across the entire state of North Carolina. But these companies are not buying houses uniformly across the state. They are very concentrated in places like Charlotte, in the Triad, in the Triangle. And in those places, what we do see is that they are across certain counties, owning anywhere from one in 20 houses to in some neighborhoods, one of five. And I think one of the things that is really important to, to understand about the way these companies are operating is that not all houses are equal in their eyes. And you can see that if you look at the, a map of their, uh, of their property ownership. They're really targeting the kinds of houses that, um, you know, at least before the most recent explosion of the housing market, uh, were accessible to sort of first-time home buyers. Um, and... And so that is a thing that I think is, is really interesting and important to note when you hear the talk about only being a small player in the market. Yeah. And if you look geographically, you know, within counties, there uh, tend to be tightly clustered in certain neighborhoods. Um, in Charlotte, you know, these purchases are basically not in the Southeast uh, wedge as we call it, of the city, where it tends to be wealthier, higher home values, and also not so much in the northern parts of this uh, county, but much more clustered in middle to lower income neighborhoods, um, east, west, and just north of uptown. So I think that that's part of the equity concern as well. Um, There's also the issue of how these companies um, treat individual tenants and renters, and I mean, we should say mom and pop landlords are obviously not perfect. The term slumlord didn't develop because they're always uh, great landlords. So it's not like the industry didn't have um, abuses and doesn't have them from individual landlords. But I think that there is a different concern about, you know, when you've got an out-of-state company managing thousands of properties through dozens of LLCs, you know, are tenants going to have the same sorts of uh, responsiveness from their landlord when they have a maintenance issue? And also these companies um, have pretty serious financial incentives, I think, to, um, you know, get all to maximize their uh, returns and use fees and, um, you know, deposits and everything they can to maximize the revenue flow out of these properties. What did you find talking with individual tenants and what were some of the issues that they brought up that they've seen? Yeah. And we, we spent a lot of time talking to tenants and, and it should be noted that there are, there are tenants that we spoke to 
on and off the record, um, who didn't really have terrible problems with some of these these companies. And we quoted some of those in the stories that, you know, that for the most part, it's been it's been fine. Uh, almost everybody we talked to noticed that the rent keeps going up. Um, but, you know, we certainly talked to uh, uh, several people who were relatively happy with their experience renting from these companies. Now, for the most part, those folks had also not had terribly major issues pop up at their homes. We talked to quite a few other residents who did have some of those issues, sewage problems, uh, major leaks, toilet backups, um, problems with HVAC, um, uh, other types of pretty serious home repair issues that they at sometimes, you know, could really take a long time to get fixed. And they complained that the company was non-responsive. It was hard to get somebody on the phone. It's hard to get somebody out. Um, there was a lot of back and forth. Oftentimes when a technician did come out, a lot of times they're using sort of local contractors and they're not always immediately empowered to spend you know, thousands of dollars to fix an HVAC unit uh, immediately. They have to go back to the company, get that, you know, get that approval. And so we, we definitely heard a lot of complaints from tenants directly. And we also examined more than 80 complaints over the last five years issued by just a handful of these companies filed by tenants to the either the attorney general's office or the real estate uh, commission in the state of North Carolina that laid these complaints out very clearly. And a lot of them, quite frankly, in addition to issues with things like slow repairs and, um, you know, waiting forever to get, you know, plumbing and mold and things like that fixed, we heard a lot of talk about fees. We, we saw documented in these complaints how companies were very quick to uh, charge people for uh, sort of the ticky-tack things that you might imagine um, would uh, would be problematic if you're trying to get your security deposit back. Um, even when tenants had taken great care to repair things at their property before moving out to, for example, pay hundreds of dollars to steam clean carpets. Um, and in all of this, to your point, goes back to this business model. And we've seen this both in SEC filings, and we've certainly talked to experts who point out that this is the case, that there is incredible incentive for these companies to squeeze their tenants. And the, that incentive uh, really can run contrary to being a good landlord. And when you're talking about doing that at scale, both because you've got thousands and thousands of properties, but also because your staff is sort of managing those thousands of properties across the, uh, the, the country, it, it does raise the stakes. And, and that's one of the concerns that tenant advocates and other experts who have been watching this, this uh, industry rise, the concern is that we're talking about sort of those landlord problems at scale. And that is one of the things that sort of showed up again and again in our conversations. Now, the industry, I should point out, um, responded to, uh, we, we put many of these complaints in front of them. Um, they responded by saying they tried to act promptly. They you know, acknowledged that at times, uh, even to the attorney general, they've acknowledged that they've made mistakes, um, but that they try to be good landlords. And in fact, they have incentive to be good landlords because if they're bad landlords, people will be reticent to rent from them. But 
you know, I think one of the things that's important to point out is that when you capture a market, when you talk about, for example, owning a quarter of all the rental homes in all of Charlotte, it can be hard for consumers to make a choice. And, and that's what happens and what we can start to figure out once we get a sense of just how large these companies' operations really are. Yeah. And I think that, you know, to your point, the fees and the way that, you know, a lot of this ticky tack stuff piles up in some ways, it's reminiscent to me of, you know, industries like the airline industry or the cable industry, where um, we've seen the, I don't know if you want to call it the feeization of American um, business life in the past couple decades where, you know, companies are really turning to these ancillary revenue streams um, to keep up and, in some ways, make up for uh, businesses that are under pressure. Um, one thing that I think is particularly interesting as a uh, former real estate reporter is the switch to build to rent as a new business model. Uh, American Homes for Rent is now uh, a very substantial home builder in their own right. And as houses get more expensive on the open market, I think uh, we're going to see more of these companies saying, well, we could spend $350 uh, a unit for a house that might need uh, work and will be geographically dispersed and harder to service, or we can build our own subdivision of 100 houses for maybe $250,000 a unit each, and they're all new, and you know we can service them all together for maintenance because they're all in the same subdivision. So from the industry perspective, I can see why this is becoming um, more popular. What do you think about this build to rent trend and kind of where all this is going next? Yeah, I mean, I think that's a very interesting piece of this. And this is something the industry has pointed out, uh, you know, in our conversations with them is that, you know, what they say is, look, we are adding capacity. One of the problems with the housing market right now is that there's just not enough to go around. And so, isn't it good, they say, that we are building? Isn't it good that we are talking about adding to the housing stock? Um, and I, I think, you know, that's an interesting argument to make. Um, but, you know, we are certainly seeing again um, where you are looking at certain neighborhoods in Charlotte, certain areas in Charlotte, zip codes or census tracts, where however you want to look at this, where the, the significant portion of the rental properties in that place is consolidated in the hands of a few different companies. Um, that really raises some important questions about how much more powerful these companies can be when it comes to this really basic thing that we need, which is housing. You know, I think, I think what you've got here is sort of, a, again, a very complicated set of forces. It is true that we need more housing. It's, it's true that we need to build more housing. It's probably true that we need more rentals in general, just like we need more you know, houses to purchase. But I think one of the open questions is going to be, you know, when we, we start to get a sense of the scale of this building and what it means when whole entire neighborhoods are taken over by single companies, um, how that's going to impact, for example, how fast rents rise and what sort of competition is in the market for finding a place to live. Um, these are going to be really important questions going you know, forward that are not going to go away and, in fact, are probably going to even intensify. And I think really what worries people who are, are watching this industry um, 
in addition to things like, as you note, you know, the fact of being sort of nickeled and dimed by sort of a la carte charges for, you know, just trying to live in a place is that, you know, we're talking about the commoditization of housing. And if we, if we believe that, if you believe that housing is a basic human right, as many advocates in the space do, that really worries people. And it's, it's something that, you know, has the potential to have really big impacts on the way we all live our lives, especially in places uh, like urban centers, like Charlotte and Raleigh and the triad um, where demand for housing is high Um largely because that's where jobs are. So we've outlined a number of concerns here. And I know in Charlotte, um, local policymakers are starting to really take notice of this. There have been uh, discussions in city council committees, in um, the Mecklenburg County commissioner meetings about, well, what can we do? What can we do? Um, And I've read a little uh, about Raleigh. I believe the mayor there is talking about it as well. Um, But so far, anyway, the answer that's come back seems to be not much. Uh, What are you hearing from local policymakers? What are they saying? And uh, is there anything that they can do? Yeah, I mean, this is such a good question. And I think the answer, the sort of jury is out on this, right? I mean, this is a really tricky problem because what we're talking about here in in effect is sort of a sacrosanct uh, part of the you know uh, um, American system, which is we're talking about contracts, right? Somebody wants to sell something, somebody else wants to buy it, um, and you know we should say that you know families are selling to these companies. You know it's not necessarily just companies selling to companies, although that happens sometimes. So um, you know the the efforts to sort of limit that um, can really not only backfire, but you know, quite frankly, might not even be legal in the first place. I think one of the things we're starting to see um, is a better understanding of the scale and scope of this issue and the degree to which it is having some impact on the the housing market and housing affordability. I think those are things that uh, policymakers are really going to be grappling with over the next uh, couple of months and probably years. What we have seen a lot, especially in Charlotte, is motion sort of on the local, even more local level, I think you could say, than say city council. A lot of HOAs have been passing policies that are prohibiting renting uh, for a certain period of time after a home is purchased. And you know those policies are the kinds of things that would prevent a company from making an investment in a community. We're also seeing, um, and we talked to some of them, uh, tenants' rights organizations who are looking at actually forming tenants' unions to argue for stronger tenant protections, especially in places like the Southeast that just do not have them. And so we are seeing some movement in the space. Uh, but I think the, the biggest thing that we're really seeing now is a struggle to get our arms around what the, the, the actual scope of the, the issue really is, like what are the real impacts. And to that end, I mean, one of the things we thought was really important in this project is making sure that not just we don't just produce stories, we don't just produce reporting, but we also produce the data. We show our work. And so we've released our data set. So, you know, policymakers and researchers and the public can download it and get a sense of 
you know, how common this problem is in their own neighborhood. I mean, we, we really want to build an understanding uh, on this to try to get people to, you know, see what can be done, if anything, about this problem, or, or frankly, even answer the question in some communities, it may not be an issue. We, there are many, many counties across the, across the state that don't have these companies operating there. Uh, but in places like Charlotte and Raleigh, I think what we are seeing is, is concern by policymakers. And that concern is being raised, not just by the policymakers themselves, but by people who are coming to them and saying, I am uncomfortable with this. I would like to see something done to curb this. And I think, um, I think it's going to be a real test to see um, what exactly may be a result of, of those complaints and those issues. But I think it is fair to say that we're going to see a lot more scrutiny of this industry going forward. Well, again, just a, a great series and we'll have a, a link to it with the show notes, but where can people follow you and find out more about this work going forward? So our series title is called Security for Sale. So if you go to charlotteobserver.com slash security for sale, uh, that will contain all of our reporting. Um, and then of course, uh, you know, consider subscribing to both uh, or either the News Observer or the Charlotte Observer, where we will continue uh, to cover uh, what is happening on this front uh, for, for many, many months and probably years to come. Tyler, thank you so much. Thank you, Eli. Thanks for joining us on the Future Charlotte podcast, produced by me, Eli Portillo, at the UNC Charlotte Urban Institute. You can find us on Apple, Spotify, and Google Podcasts. If you like the show, please rate it, share it with your friends, and keep looking to the future, Charlotte.